Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have sent your Son down to earth to be made like us, fully human in every way. Father, for for those of us for whom this is just a really overly familiar truth, would you please help us to see it in a new and more beautiful light this morning? For those of us for whom perhaps it is an alien truth, would you help us to, to, to understand rightly and be amazed at what it means? Please would you exalt the name of Jesus this morning. For your glory we pray. Amen. Why are many of us so busy? Too busy, maybe, for some of us. I'm sure not everyone in this room feels like they are too busy. But it is a noticeable feature of British culture, especially middle-class culture and middle-class evangelical Christian culture, that we often lead very busy lives. And if you're new to the UK, you'll probably notice that soon enough. And even if you've not experienced, even if that's not you being busy, you may have experienced the side effects of it, like people not having time for you when you want it. So why are many of us so busy? Obviously, there are going to be some good reasons like being passionate about our work, maybe finding great satisfaction in a piece of carpentry really well done, or being at the cutting edge of breaking new frontiers in medical science. Some of us will feel really busy and stretched just because we've got lots of young children, and that's hard. And that's just a season in life that we have to get through in some ways, although it has many joys. Some of our busyness will be driven by a commendable zeal for God, a desire to to honour him in all that we do, to serve his kingdom and to make Jesus known. And I don't particularly want to question those good reasons for being busy. But even if we've been Christians for years, we still don't and we won't have entirely pure or good motives for anything this side of Jesus' return And that includes our motives for being busy. So what might some of those motives be? Well, we're not going to be able to cover everything this morning. There's no way. But I think our busyness often comes from struggles to accept our limitations in time and in space. We only have 24 hours in a day. Seven days in a week, we might live for 90 years if we're lucky, if we're blessed with good health. And we can only be in one place at a time. But it's a big, exciting world out there, and there are so many things we want to do or feel like we ought to be doing. So we are limited in in time and space. And I want to show how, although we struggle with that in some ways, the incarnation of Jesus dignifies our humanity, and it dignifies those particular limits. That we can't do everything, and we can't be everywhere at once. Remember, the incarnation means to to, to be in flesh. It is about the eternal Son of God taking on our flesh, our bones, our blood, our hormones, our neural pathways, everything about us, except sin. 
And as we explore this today, I hope that we will be helped maybe to accept our limits that little bit more, maybe to, to see them as a good thing instead of something to always fight against. And if you're a, a really, really busy person, I hope you will be helped at least to start asking the right kind of questions about why, I, why am I so busy? Why are we as a church collectively so busy? Are there things that need to change? So let's begin by pressing into some of the reasons that we do struggle with our limits in time and space. Um, and then we're going to see how Jesus dignifies those limits. And then we will spend a bit of time exploring what it might look like to accept those limits in humble dependence upon God. Because dependency is the flip side of being limited. Because we are limited, we have to depend on someone or something. So let's start. The, why do we struggle? Why are so many of us so busy? One reason is fear. We see it in secular culture in sayings like, you only live once, or fear of missing out. Basically, life is short. You don't always get a second chance to try something good or new. And so people feel like they have to squeeze as much out of life as possible before it's too late. And even if many of us would disagree with those sentiments, because we do believe in life after death, and a better one than anything this world can offer, even so, we still succumb to the same kind of fear, partly because it's in the cultural air we breathe, and partly because it's in our sinful natures that doubt God's goodness and disbelieve his promises. So we easily doubt whether an eternity with Jesus in the new heaven and earth is actually going to be all that good. Or at least because it is so far away and distant and remote from our present realities, we really struggle to engage with it. So most of us get carried along with the wider culture to some extent. Maybe putting our hope in more exciting holidays or a year of travel abroad, or chasing the perfect career, or creating the perfect home, and preferably owning it and not renting it, or searching for the perfect relationship. You could go on and on, couldn't you? We easily feel obliged to work longer hours, to get better GCSEs or A-levels or degrees, and to chase promotions so that we can afford the high standard of living that's required to fulfill these kind of aspirations. So perhaps because of fear, fear of missing out, we end up being too busy. But there are other reasons. Perhaps it's the pressure that comes from inside. Maybe it's fed by pressure from outside, but inside of us, we've taken to heart the value that our culture places on what we do. So for example, the stay-at-home mum, or occasionally dad, might feel awkward when someone asks them, so what do you do? Because they feel like they don't have a career to locate their identity in, and therefore they almost have nothing to justify their existence. I've, I've heard a couple of people say this to me before. They feel like they ought to be doing more, trying to squeeze in a career perhaps, or at least do extra voluntary work, 
Otherwise, people might think they're a bit of a failure or wasting their life. Even though they're probably working hard in all kinds of ways, they're probably already quite involved in their community or their church. And they're doing one of the most honorable and important jobs in the universe by investing in their kids. But still, there is this pressure to do more, do something, have a career, because that's where our culture often places your worth. Similarly, because of that pressure to find our value in what we do, those of us who are perfectionists, me included, don't just find a, a healthy satisfaction in a job well done, but we are obsessed with getting it just right. How good we feel about ourselves can go hand in hand with our last essay and the grade we got on it, or how good that last show-stopping piece of home baking was that our friends got to see, or by how good our time was in the last half marathon we ran, or a whole host of other things. Because we measure our worth by it. We struggle to accept that something is good enough, even when other people are impressed by it. And so we frequently miss project deadlines, or meals, or sleep, or quality time with friends and family, or church, because we're still trying to achieve the impossible. We're trying to achieve perfection, which human beings cannot do. I guess a lot of our struggles also come from a combination of, of, of internal and external factors. That's especially obvious, again, I think, in how often middle-class, university-educated folk like many of us move around so much. We're encouraged by our, our culture and possibly by our parents to place a high value on career, and so we, we leave home to go to the best university we can, and then we move again on graduation to get the best job we possibly can with the right combination of pay and career prospects. But then in a few years, we might move again for a promotion or a higher pay because we're, we're keen to buy a house, or maybe we move because we can't afford to buy a house here, or just because we're a bit bored with our current career. And because several of our family members and our friends are doing exactly the same, we're becoming ever more stretched because we are spending so many of our days off traveling to see them or so many of our spare minutes on WhatsApp or Instagram or Facebook trying to keep up with them. So we struggle to make new friends where we actually live. We may well struggle to get stuck into church because we're only around one or two weekends a month. And we probably, if you're anything like me, struggle to keep up with housework and life admin because <laughs> you don't have any free evenings for it. And it's exhausting. It often leaves us feeling guilty because we can't be there for people whom we love and care about, partly because they're 200 miles away or 2,000 miles away. It's also isolating because as we get older, we find it harder to make new friends, most of us anyway. But our existing friends don't live around us anymore. But we don't seem to have a choice other than to keep going, to keep playing the game, because society makes it seem implausible 
that we would ever settle for a, a lower income or a smaller house or a less exciting and prestigious career in order to invest in being in one place and having a sensible pace of life. So for a complex mix of reasons, I haven't even talked about what we do in church yet, I will come on to that. For a complex mix of reasons, many of us are trying to cram more into our lives than we actually have time for, and many of us are trying to be in too many places at once. And we feel guilty or ashamed or angry or resentful because we can't do it. It's impossible. So let's move on to how the incarnation dignifies our limits in, in time and space in particular. And how it shows us the, the goodness of accepting them in humble dependence on God. As we read earlier in um, Hebrews 2, verse 17, Jesus was made like us, fully human in every way, which means he took on our limits in time and space. We're going to read a, a short passage from Mark's Gospel that demonstrates this. If you've got a Bible or a phone, look up um, Mark chapter 1, verses 35 to 39, which if, if you're in the church Bibles, I think is page 1003. So Mark chapter 1, verses 35 to 39. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Now this is early on in Jesus' ministry, but he's already gained a, a big following because his teaching and his miracles display such authority. He's magnetic. So there are lots of demands on his time. Lots of people want a piece of him. And because he is fully human, he has to choose between competing priorities. He can't heal everyone and get a good night's sleep and maintain close dependence on his heavenly father in prayer. And because he refuses to shortcut his human nature because he refuses to rely on his divine nature to transcend or escape his normal limits. He chooses the most important thing. He sacrifices sleep and productive seeming ministry in order to pray, to depend on his heavenly father. Similarly, he has a choice to make about where he stays. He can only be in one place at a time. So does he stay in Capernaum, healing and teaching there in hope that the locals there will, will repent and believe that more of them will become mature disciples? Or does he go on to the other villages because the kingdom of God has come near and because all of Galilee and Judea need to hear about it? He can't do both, not at the same time, and he chooses to move on because that is more in line with his purpose at this point, his reason for coming into the world. 
Now is not the time for deep discipleship, except in his 12 apostles, perhaps. Now is the time to get the word out to all Israel. So he willingly accepts the need to stop doing one good thing in order to pursue another good thing that is more urgent. He knows he can't do it all at once, even in three years. And he doesn't apologize for it. Jesus could not be everywhere. He could not do everything. And he was not ashamed of that. Even though as God, his his divine nature is outside of time and space, accepting human limits might have seemed rather humiliating for him. But he was not ashamed. And you know what? His human nature still shares those limits, even now, after his resurrection. If Jesus could be in several places at once, why did he need to send the Holy Spirit to the church after he ascended into heaven? Surely he could have continued in preaching and teaching all over the world. Wouldn't that be more effective than um, leaving us, leaving us to it and sending a, an invisible spirit that no one can see? Well, no. Because in, in John 16, verse 7, he tells his disciples, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So there is a proper order to be observed. And if Jesus is to fulfill God's purposes for humanity, which we explored two weeks ago in in Hebrews 2, if he is going to sit on the throne in heaven and rule even the angels, he can't be on earth. If he's going to rule all the creation and cause his kingdom to spread, he has to do it from heaven. Because he's a man now, as well as God. So Jesus remains limited by time and space. And yet, again, as Hebrews 2 verse 11 implies, he is not ashamed of those limits. He's not ashamed to share, to be part of the same family as us. And he's not ashamed to be part of the same limited natures as us. Why isn't he ashamed? And why are our limits so good? That's kind of what I want to press into now. Why are these limits so good for us? Why should we accept them gladly instead of fighting against them? Well, they are good because they teach us to depend on the only person in the whole universe who is truly unlimited and who is actually therefore able to come through for us in every circumstance, every place, and particularly importantly, who can take care of all the things that we do not have time to do and who can look after all the people who we cannot go and see because they're 200 miles away from us. We're we're going to sing later some some verses from Isaiah 40, where God asks question after question, just prompting us to to think, uh, who is the truly unlimited one? Is 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 it him or is it us? 
And he asks questions like, who has measured the, the waters in the hollow of his hands? Or the breath, or with the breadth of his hand, marked off the heavens? I hope the answer is fairly obvious. It's, it's not us. Or he'll say things like, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the canopy of the heavens like, sorry, stretches out the heavens like a canopy, spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away. Can we do things like that? Can we see time and space from God's perspective above the heavens? Can we see everything at once and control everything at once? No. But he can. And he invites us to depend on. And surely that is not a burden, but that is the greatest privilege that any human being could be given. Because it's impossible for us to to do all those things and be in all those places. We, We make a fairly bad job of it when we try, don't we? But God invites us to depend on him. Because he is creator, we are creatures. And that is how we are made to thrive. How is it going for you? Trying to do so much. How is it going for you trying to keep up with so many people in so many places? If you're like me, it's it's utterly demoralizing. And that's because we are not meant to try, but rely on the one who can do everything that we cannot. So God wants us to trust him, that we can still experience life to the full now, even if it means sacrificing opportunities for promotion, or a higher salary, or a bigger house, or a house that we own, or exciting holidays abroad. He wants us to trust him that we can still be content if we slow down our pace of life and work fewer hours and stay in one place. He wants us to trust him that a person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions or their achievements or their experiences or even the number of their friends on Facebook. Because life to the full is found in knowing Jesus not in doing all those things and being in all those places. And if we sacrifice some of our worldly aspirations for the sake of spending more time with him, resting with him, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, we will actually be far more content. I found this to be true again and again in the last six years. Since going to Bible college, since starting work as a pastor, Megan and I have had to lower our expectations for standard of living 
and other things every couple of years. And they've kept going down from where we were when we were both sort of working in secular jobs. And I don't want to pretend that hasn't been a struggle at times. But looking back, we have experienced so much of God's kindness and we have so many glad memories that the moments of discontent pale into insignificance. God wants us to depend on him that we can be content with a slower pace of life and lower aspirations, if needs be. God also wants us to depend on him by trusting that our identity is secure if we don't manage to be as productive or produce such perfect results or keep as many plates spinning as we would like. He wants us to trust that our identity is fixed simply because we bear his image, as we, as we heard last week. His image is something conferred on us from outside ourselves. So it remains fixed even if we are in a coma and unable to do anything. And better still, because Jesus has atoned for the sins of everyone who believes in him, as Hebrews 2 verse 17 says, we are doubly accepted by God. We are not just his image bearers, but we are beloved sons and daughters in his family. Which means we don't need to prove anything. How much of your busyness is, is driven by trying to prove something to God or to other people. Do you realize that Jesus has already done enough? Or at least he has done enough for your heavenly father to be satisfied with you. And if you don't need to prove yourself to your heavenly father, why do you need to prove yourself to anyone else? Finally, God wants us to depend on him, not only as individuals, but as churches. He hasn't called us into his family because he needs a race of slaves to do his work for him. His beautiful work of, of redeeming and restoring creation is not dependent on any single one of us individually or even any one particular church. God does not need MRC. And that's because it all depends on him, ultimately. That's why Jesus teaches us to pray daily, your kingdom come, your will be done. It is our father's kingdom, ruled by his son, and he is the only one who can actually make it come. We can't. Even all that we do in his service is utterly dependent on his spirit to make it effective. And so it's okay if we can't evangelize every single person we meet or see around us. It is okay if we can't meet every single practical need in our community, even in hard times like this. It is okay if we sometimes have to stop ministries rather than always starting more. Because we are bound by space and time. And we were never meant to do all of God's work ourselves. We can trust him to do everything that we cannot do 
or that we shouldn't try because we're already busy enough. And if he thinks it's important enough, he will make it happen. That doesn't mean we do nothing. God has given his church collectively as a whole the privilege, the commission of being his agents, his representatives on earth and making disciples of every nation, teaching them to obey everything Jesus commanded and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And obeying that commission is the single most important thing in any Christian's life. But individual people and individual churches can only do a fraction of it. Which is why we need to depend on God to ask him to make his kingdom come. And which is why we need to depend on other churches too. Isn't it great? Isn't it wonderful that MRC doesn't have to, like, that much of what we don't manage to do as a church is done by other churches around Oxford? If you put us all together... There is a lot of different kinds of evangelism and social action and discipleship and all sorts of other things going on. And where we are weak or where we are unable, other churches are strong, praise God. In any case, we still need to ask God's help for the things we are good at in order for them to be effective. So as we, as we think about the shape of church life and our, our vision and our priorities for the year ahead, and the kind of senior pastor that we want to recruit for next summer. The most important thing we can do is pray. Like Jesus, choosing to leave Capernaum and going to the surrounding villages instead, we need the right priorities because we can't do everything. So we need to pray. We need to look to God's word to see what, in a sort of general sense, those priorities are and then look to the people and the gifts that we already have among us to see which of those things we are best placed to meet. And if we don't feel like we've got time even for that kind of reflection, it's probably a good sign that we are already trying to do far too much. If you are not familiar with Isaiah 40. I think the one thing that I would, I would suggest as we go away from here is read that. Read Isaiah 40 next time you have 10 minutes if you're a quick reader. If you're like me, probably 20 minutes um, to sit down with God's words. We need to see how God alone is transcendent and unlimited. We need to let that fill our, fill our minds, fill our hearts. And we need to, to be convinced of the goodness of our own limitations because we can depend on one who is utterly unlimited. Go away and read Isaiah 40 if, if you have chance. We're going to sing about it later as well. But for now, let's pray.